Welcome to Photo Geek Weekly, episode 117, recorded on July 31st of 2020. Uh, the show where I'm your host, Don Kamarechka, and I like to geek out about photo stuff, stuff that comes up in the industry. They could be technical, they could be legal or ethical, whatever is uh, newsworthy, puzzling, and full of photo geekery. And with me is always a co-host. This week is one of my very favorite people to have on this podcast, somebody that goes toe-to-toe with the geekery banter, as well as digging deep beyond the headlines to figure out those little nuggets of knowledge that we all love about photography. And that is Steve Brazel. So Steve, how you doing, man? I'm good. How are you, my friend? I'm doing great. Uh, you know, kind of getting back a little bit of my photographic mojo, um, you know, just having some fun experimenting and playing with my camera that, I mean, I admit in this pandemic mode, I'm being more of a, of a dad than I am a photographer. Uh, and I think a lot of people are in exactly the same boat. And you have to juggle those carefully because you do not want to neglect your children, which are depending on you for being both a parent and a best friend. Uh, but you also got work to do. And right. so uh, I sent you some photos when I was sending you the, uh, the the show notes of some stuff that I was working on, just some experimental things that I'll be publishing soon. And uh, that kind of got me in- enthused again about certain things. And uh, to be creative is what I got into this industry for, not just recording a weekly podcast. Yeah, it's just, you know, sometimes you just need a little bit of uh, experimentation is a wonderful thing because it's kind of this internal inspiration. Right. Letting letting your mind come out into something 3D and well, I mean, 2D in this case, but you know what I mean? Uh, into something real is an amazing. Oh, trust me, I, I put my stereo camera, uh, uh, my stereo lens on my camera the other day as well. So 3D applies to me, sir. Well, and you were talking about that with the last episode with Alex Lindsay. And I have to say, I that may be the best episode ever of Photo Geek Weekly. Alex was a fantastic guest. He was eloquent, he was polite, but he geeked out like nobody else. Uh, And he had anecdotes and he had examples and he had the experience to make it all, um, uh, I don't want to just say authentic, but respected and credentialized. You know, he he brought uh, the street cred of everything that he was saying to the table. Yeah, he's got got the, uh, the resume to back up his opinions and... Uh, one of the smartest people I know and just, you know, you and I both love his office hours that he's doing each morning. And uh, but yeah, just great episode. Really, it, people, if you have not listened to it, even though it's photo news, much of what they talk about is not time sensitive. So go back and listen to uh, the previous episode with Alex Lindsay. Well, that is well said, Steve. But what's what's new? And, and unfortunately, uh, I have you. to follow it. <laughs> <laughs> Big shoes to fill. Yeah. But you filled the spot before. Uh, we haven't talked in a little while, at least not officially on the record. Uh, what, what's uh, new and happening in your neck of the woods? All the same stuff, usually just still doing behind the shot. And you and I are still doing the critique shows. And we've got a critique show coming up August. I think it's August 6th. I think it's the first Thursday of August. And our guest this time around for the critique show is going to be our mutual friend, Aunt Pruitt from. This Week in Tech podcast, he does hands-on photography, hands-on wellness, and that's going to be a, a fun critique show. So, you know, get your images up for that. And then just doing my shows, I, I did an interview with Canon regarding the R5, R6, and RF lenses that that uh, were announced earlier this month and had Rick Salmon on the show. And I've got Alistair Jolly coming up soon from Smug Mug, just all the normal stuff. 
Awesome. Well, and and Ant, he's he's a class act as well. He is another genuine soul within this industry. And I, uh, he was on an episode of Photo Geek Weekly recently as well. I got to have him back on because um, he, I, I don't want to say he shoots from the hip because he does take aim at what he's talking about and in almost every uh, occasion, but he's not afraid to pull the trigger on his opinions and, and make it well known. And I love people that not only uh, aren't afraid to share their opinions, but have good opinions to share. <laughs> Those two have uh, to come. I totally agree. Yeah. yeah. He, 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 again, is a guy that's been around. He's a smart guy and uh, fun to talk to. And also one of the most consummate professionals, nice guys you'll meet. Exactly. And so we are in good company on this podcast, Steve. We, we're in mutual circles of wonderful people that lift us up. And uh, this is... I mean, every, people listening to this, this might be a level of social interaction for you that uh, you're not getting in person. And for me talking to you, Steve, this is the same. This is this is very valuable for me on a weekly basis to maintain my sanity. So I thank you for being here. It's it's a photo community, which actually kind of ties into what my pick of the week is going to be. But but the the photo community during this time where we're not out shooting, or in my particular case, where I'm not seeing my friends that I photograph concerts with on a regular basis in a photo pit. The way the photo community in all genres, from podcasting to to Twitch live streams to whatever, the way that we have all banded together, and I, I've made some you know deep relationships, you know as much as they can be through this online time. The photo community has been amazing. And uh, the, the trolls know no limits online as well, right? I mean, people are, for everyone you want to make friends with, there's 10 more that want to uh, take whatever comments you have on anything and throw them back in your face with a little bit of extra mud added. Um, and Oh, yeah. We, I experienced we, that kind of for the first time on my Canon interview. <laughs> there were a couple of comments that called me names. Uh, that means you've made it. That yeah, means well, you apparently. <laughs> Uh, but a I, I, reason why I mentioned that is that Canon has been in hot water, uh, and that's something of a double entendre uh, in, in their latest release of cameras. But there's also the release of the Sony A7S III, which is um, one of our top stories. I mean, arguably for me, uh, the top story is the, uh, the comeuppance of the uh, CF Express Type A memory card, which uh, we'll talk about as well, because those are Sony came up with both of those at the same time. And, and uh, the cards, just to put this out there, since you mentioned it, the cards that they came out, came out with are the tough version of the cards, along with a reader to read them. Yeah, but they also made a recall on the tough, at least some of their tough cards. Yeah, that happens to everybody. So. And so, yeah, it's got good branding, uh, so long as that branding still has its proper pedigree. But this has been long in the tooth. I mean, the A7S II came out uh, in the second half of 2015, and we are now in the second half of 2020. So it's not, because it was October versus uh, July, it's announced almost exactly five years down the road. That's a long product life cycle to keep a camera on the market and to stay relevant. And they did that with the A7S II. I'm not sure how many they were selling in the last year or two of that cycle. Um, but we all knew the new version of that was going to be coming, but we didn't really know what it was going to be because what niche is that going to fill? 
I always suspected that it was going to come after a big announcement from one of the other players. Uh, and Sony's been known to do this in the past, where uh, somebody comes out, you know, waving their banner and being so happy, and then Sony comes and just stomps them to the ground. Um, and, Can you not uh, see them in a meeting going, anybody announced <laughs> anything yet? We think that we think Canon's going to do something July 11th. Okay, let's pencil in, you know, two weeks after that. Yeah. Uh, and so you can even see like some of the stuff in their, their original press release might have been, uh, you know, pointed directly at at Canon in terms of heat dissipation on the cameras yeah. and so on and so forth. But let's talk about what the A7S three is. Uh, and it's still 12 megapixels. Its predecessor was also 12 megapixels. And so um, there has to be a place for a 12 megapixel camera in uh, in production in professional environments, because this is a pro body. This is not something aimed at amateurs. Um, and it reminded me, actually, Steve, of the uh, the Lumix GH5 uh, GH5S, and that was uh, also a 12 megapixel body, although on a smaller scale, the Micro Four Thirds. Um, it was decidedly not a stills camera. It could do stills, sure. And I did use it as a stills camera uh, to shoot some snowflakes and other stuff. And they were some of the best pixels I ever shot with. Um, so 12 megapixels is not uh, something to just kind of discard, especially now that technology has improved so much. But at that level, you really want the video features to take hold. And I think, based on everything that I'm seeing on this spec list, which we'll go through, that this is more a video-centric camera than it is a stills, but it can it can play both positions, right? So you set me up as though we had talked before about this, and we have not. <laughs> I've got so many opinions here. So first of all, let me start here. This is a pro body. Everybody's going to recognize this is a pro body. It's $3,500. It's a pro body. Keep in mind that Canon only sees their 1D series as pro. Their 5 series, they consider prosumer. That's, that is a known fact. That's part of the reason that there's certain crippling that happens in the 5 series, which I, uh, drive me nuts. But that's a key distinction, which leads to my second and what I think is one of the biggest points that we've seen this month between <clears throat> the Canon release and the Sony release. Companies make decisions on the products that they're going to release based on the market segment they want to target. This isn't a haphazard arrow shot at a wall, hoping that it hits a dot on the wall that's smaller than the arrow itself. These are meetings and planning, and you have engineers arguing with marketers, trying to figure out the marketers, what they think they can market in the current you know, environment that's out there in the world and what else is selling, and the engineers with what they can do technologically. And what you see here is the vision or the different vision of two different companies. I believe Sony sees this camera themselves as primarily a video tool. Yes, it takes pictures, but it's a hybrid camera leaning to the video side. Canon, on the other hand, released a camera that I believe, they'll never say it, but I believe internally they see as a stills camera, which is odd considering that it's the 5d mark ii that even kind of brought this genre of video making to the market at, you know in, in mass i believe because now they have their cinema series line i believe that they see the five uh r5 and r6 as a hybrid camera that's primarily stills the dabbles in video 
And that's where the marketing and engineering teams were out of sync. Sony nailed the combination of marketing and engineering working together to produce a product and keep the marketing spiel in sync with what the product really does. Well, and let's take a look at what the product does, right? Um, ISO uh, uh, base level of 80, uh, which is nice, you know, a little bit lower than 100. Talking ISO here. Yeah. Um, uh, uh, ISO, ISO, however you want to pronounce it. Don't get mad at me for mispronouncing boca or bouquet uh, yeah. either. But um, Potato, uh, potato, uh, which also comes into another story later. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you're, you're, yes, we're burying the lead. The, the, yeah. the fun is at the end. Um, but uh, and up to uh, 102,400 uh, ISO, which is expandable, uh, you know, cutting that in half to 40 on one end, which is also very common to have a, a low setting a little bit lower, which is just remapping um, the the 80 ISO uh, version uh, to a lower level. But you're not actually shooting at that. You can do that in post. I don't know why you would. And the same thing on the higher level up to 100 uh, or sorry, uh, 409,600. So let me let me interrupt you here. If you got your hands on this, isn't one of the first things you would do is shoot it at 409, 600 just to see it? If, if, you, if you sat down in, in a V12 Ferrari, would you casually go around the corner to a supermarket or would exactly. you find the nearest highway on ramp? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> So, uh, yeah, and and so you'd try it, and it, it probably won't perform all that well, but it'll perform better than any of its peers, I can assume, at that level. If it um, performs great at 10,000, 12,000, anywhere half of 102,000. I've loaned out my uh, my S1H for a uh, an aerial video shoot uh, at night uh, in the belly of an airplane f- uh, to a colleague of mine and uh, dialed in at ISO 12,800. It was coming through pretty, pretty nice. Yeah, that's the thing. Um, and so you want to have that high performance, not for every scenario, obviously, but if you get a gig or you get to uh you know put in a, a bid for something uh that is on the extremes you need to have the gear to handle that right uh, and and those are usually the best paying gigs uh not to say that the uh the a7s is going to be something that everybody wants to have in their back pocket it won't fit in your back pocket it is a very special kind of gear um, that has a high price tag that has to be used professionally otherwise you will not get back your return on investment for something like this well uh, you mentioned 12 megapixels let's let's not scoot over the fact here that that 12 megapixels is is really what's making this io iso range at any quality usable well, usable and at any quality, because uh, a lot of other cameras at, you know, 40 plus megapixels will go to that ISO range. Yes. Um, but that doesn't mean it's going to be as good because bigger pixels collect more light. It's just fundamental to the physics of all of this. Uh, and if it's designed around 4K video, then you're going to be using, not all of them, obviously, the aspect ratio is going to be different. Uh, but you're going to be using a lot of that for the video purposes of that camera. And you can do 4K at up to 120 frames per second, uh, which we were talking about Alex Lindsay on the last episode. That's where uh, 24 uh, and uh, 30 and 60 frames per second are all divisible by that number uh, or the other way around. But they're all matching. 
And so that's uh, a very powerful number to be shooting with because it becomes that much more versatile if right. you have a client that needs, uh, you know, uh, a, a slow-mo kind of feel that can speed right back up and you can interpolate the frames to in- introduce motion blur in between them and the software is getting better and better to do that. What I thought was really interesting here was the 9.44 million dot EVF, which is far and away the highest resolution electronic viewfinder that almost I've ever double. seen. It's it's almost matching the megapixels of the sensor, right? You know, it's it's nine point almost nine point five uh, megapixels versus a twelve megapixel sensor. They're they're not quite at parity, but they're getting pretty close. Um, and if Sony's making that, and I can guarantee you, Sony's the manufacturer of that. I mean, they're making so many of these components. They make the EVFs for a lot of other cameras as well. Um, then it won't be long before we see that 9.44 million dot EVF in other products too, which gets me excited because Sony doesn't hoard that for themselves. They are freely going to sell that to anybody with a big enough budget to afford that. So long as their own supply chain for their own products is not constrained. Um, Well, but here's the thing. That's almost double the resolution of the EVF that's in the R5. Yeah. Uh, It's OLED which means through the EVF, you're going to get rich blacks compared to whites. You're, you're going to see an amazing picture through this thing. And it, and by the way, it does not do this out of the box. You must turn it on, but it will do up to 120 frames per second on the EVF, which means super smooth. And the reason why that's not on by default is because it's a big battery drain. Yeah, it would suck it down. You skipped over something though. You said 4K at up to 120, which is great. But actually, the one that rung out to me, because this is the big crime that Canon committed, is it'll do 4K 60 at, quote, at least an hour, end quote, which I thought was really kind of a little twist of the knife there. It was. And okay, so we we know that Canon has heating issues. Uh, If you go out uh, through the day and you shoot with an R5 taking stills and you want to switch over to the highest quality video mode that you might have bought the camera for, even though you only need 20 seconds of footage, it might lock you out of that entirely because it's already hit its heating limit. Um, It could theoretically hit its heating limit if you weren't shooting stills. If you just turned it on and then went around and set up your movie set, by the time you came back, you may have a problem filming. Exactly. And uh, so we should stress at 4K 60 or 8K. Right. Or 4K HQ. If you're doing 4K 30, that's less of an issue. Of course. Uh, But in any construct, if it hits its heating limit, uh, if you're even trying to dial in at any level of 4K, it might not let you because it's already past the threshold of saying, no, there's a heating limit. We're already there and we're not going to get past that. and, I did see uh, one report where the Sony actually overheated before the Canon, but they they even said in their test that was unusual. It was, and I saw a lot of uh, I forget who it was that I saw a test that they were firing a, a like a, a laser thermometer at the backs of the cameras, and the Sony was hotter than the Canon. But that that's a bit of a, a miscalculation there because if the back of the camera is hotter, it means that it might be better at dissipating heat. That that just right. may be where the heat's being released at intentionally. Exactly. And so, well, the heat's got to go from the inside to the outside somewhere. That's like saying saying the bottom of a MacBook was, you know, a MacBook Pro was warmer than the bottom of a a Surface. Well, that's where it's dissipating the heat. 
Well, exactly. And so I've got a Surface Book 3 and the bottom, which has the GPU and the battery, doesn't get that hot unless I'm using GPU intensive stuff. The screen's going to get hot. Right. And, and so correlation does not equal causation uh, in, in that regard. Um, 16 bit raw video output at up to 60 frames per second. I now, that's not, that's not internal. Uh, you'd need an external that's recorder output. in order. Uh, yeah, that, that, that's the output. So you need something to capture that on the other side. There's tons of stuff like uh, the Atmos Ninja V, which I right. also have here. Um, but that, internals, it's no slouch. Oh, no, no. 10-bit uh, 422 internal capture. Uh, uh, you can choose your codec uh, using H.265 or all I H.264. But, but just the fact that it's 10-bit 422, the old, all the old ones were 8-bit 420. So right. this is four times the amount of data. Well, and I've got, uh, I mean, internally, my S1H does the same. And so this is something that's been around for a while. It's not new. It's not groundbreaking. But for an SLR style body to have 16-bit raw video output at up to that 60 frames per second, um, that's, I again, if I'm shooting uh, raw with my uh, S1H, ProRes raw uh, as the output, it's no slouch up to 5.9K. And uh, and I've been doing more of that. I've had a client that's come to me with some, uh, some work requiring that. Um, and uh, that job is paying for half the price of the camera for doing just one job, right? So if you have the right equipment and the, the right skill set and the right client, uh, the equipment it doesn't really matter what it costs because it's going to be almost like a line item after you do a couple of jobs. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's, at that point, it's a it. commercial tool you're using for a paying gig. Uh, nobody's going to think. But all of these things that that we're listing off here, the codec options, the, the, the internal versus external, the fact that it has a complete full size like your Panasonic HDMI port, as opposed to not even a mini, but a micro on the R6 and R5. These are, there's a bunch of other little things we'll get into, like the I, the, the, the in-body image stabilization, the flippy screen, et cetera. But well, we don't even really, because every camera is going to have that to say. Everybody, every camera's got it. But I, I do d disagree with the exclusion of one feature that I think I linked to in the show notes, where they excluded the pixel shift high resolution yeah. mode for this camera. Because, yeah, you know what? If you quadruple 12 megapixels, you're only going to get up to 48 megapixels. Right. Um, and that's not going to be a, a a, a groundbreaking thing because you can get easily 40 to 60 megapixel cameras with a single shot. But again, that's a single shot. What I was going to say was all these things that we're listing with the specs and the codecs, codecs, et cetera, it clearly shows that Sony is identifying this as a video tool that is secondary for photography, which again, it's 12 megapixels. There are people that would love to just put an 800 millimeter lens on and shoot this thing in photography and they'd be happy with 12. But we live in a world where people are upset that the R6 has 20. For whatever various reasons they're upset, yes, some people will be okay with 12, but in the photographic world in 2020, there is no question that is a low megapixel count. The megapixel was being done. Yeah, you have to justify that low megapixel exactly uh, in in other means, right? And and they've done that through video. Clearly, they've done it through video with a lot of really cool features. What what I I hinted at earlier is that they've also announced uh, uh, the first story was reported by DP Review, and the second one also is Sony announced the world's first CF Express Type A cards and card reader. Now, 
if you're not familiar with CF Express, the CF Express Type B cards um, are synonymous with a uh, an XQD card. So, I mean, Steve can't really, see, well, Steve can see me, but nobody else can see me holding right. up an XQ, uh, XQD card with a CF Express card side by side. They're identical. They have the same pinouts and, and everything them. else. Uh, yeah, I just dropped one. Uh, hey, they're durable. Um, yeah. uh, I, I dropped the Sony one and it's tough branded. So it's that, a tough there, brand. There we go. I hope it's not the uh, recall. <laughs> Uh, but the the idea uh, with that is it was a, a shoe in replacement for XQD cards using the NVMe protocols. And I don't want to go into the weeds about all that, but they made the CF Express standard based on uh, the number of PCI Express lanes it was capable of. And there was three classes. Uh, B was two lanes. You could get a bigger card, and I haven't seen those yet, that would have four separate lanes. This would be like a uh, a red mini mag replacement or something of that nature uh, that would just have oodles of bandwidth and would be for those really high-end production uh, equipment gear. But then if you take it down a notch to the type A, it'll have one lane. So A is one lane, B is two, and, and C is four lanes. So if you make it one lane on PCI Express, you cut the bandwidth in half. It's still faster than an SD card. Um, and it can be made into a, almost exactly the same form factor such that it can fit in the same slot. And uh, the, uh, the A7S three has two card slots. Either of them can hold either an SD or a CF Express type A card. And I think that that's just perfect because it's, you it, have... Go, go ahead, I'm sorry. Uh, the, the, you have the legacy of all the SD cards that you could just plop them in without any degradation or any problems whatsoever. Uh, or in that exact slot, you can buy a CF Express type A card and put it right in there and improve your performance. And that kind of gives you uh, a step forward. You don't have to invest in the, uh, the cards right now. You might want to, uh, but you don't necessarily have to get two of them on day one. They might get faster as time goes on uh, or at least cheaper uh, because I think you're limited on overall bandwidth with these particular cards. But I think that that's going to be, um, I, I'm going to be bold here, Steve. I'm going to say, this is going to be one of the very first nails in the coffin of the SD card format. Oh, I don't disagree with you at all. But but to me, just the fact, this is going to sound so simplistic, just the fact that it's two slots in a body and the two slots are the same, right? I don't have to worry about carrying CF and SD, or I don't have to worry about carrying CF Express and uh, uh, you know SD. The fact that I can have one card wallet with all the same cards and I can put them in any slot, interchangeable, in and of itself, is is uh, nothing to to you know blink at quickly. There's there's a thing, a number of things we got into the cards, and and I, I wanted to say there's a couple of things on this body that we skipped over that I think are important. One of the questions I asked in my interview with Drew from Canon was because the the R5 and R6 have USB-C. Is that for data transfer only, or can you actually charge and run the camera off USB-C? You cannot. This one, you can actually power the camera from USB-C. So if Again, there's no battery in the camera, can you operate it fully with just the cord? I don't in? know. I, I don't know if you need a battery for for just closing the circuit. But you can plug in and draw power from the USB-C to run the ca camera. So the wording was, it can be charged or powered by USB-C. 
Whether or not that battery has to be in there just because that closes the circuit, I don't know. But that is nothing that an average user will do. But it is something somebody will put a cage around this and put this on a video tripod and rack a battery to it so that they can power this thing all day without trouble in the field. Again, it's a pro body. It is the ba- the battery rating. So if you talk about the CIPA, SIPA battery ratings, they're double what the cannons are. Um, there is just so much. I, I've in- never found though, Steve, that like USB-C, as convenient as it is as a port, you can plug it in any way and right. it generally has a good solid connection. I wouldn't rely on a, a production rig to be powered by such a tiny little fiddly cable that could possibly be knocked out unless you're finding additional gear to make sure that that you doesn't would happen. if you were in the field shooting longer than you planned and you had a big external battery. And I have USB-Cs that, that plug in extremely securely. Like you have to really work to unplug it because it snaps in so tight. I don't think that's a, that's, I mean, again, it's not optimum, but it's better than a proprietary plug. Oh, sure. It's better than having to put an AC kit in the battery slot. Uh, it gives, a, there are variable ways that you can utilize this tool, Right. There are many ways it can adapt to your work environment. I right. really honestly think if you're a video shooter and you're not married to, to another company's glass, whatever that glass is, I mean, if you own $20,000 in Canon glass, you're probably one of the people that's disappointed in an R5 or an R6. Yeah, but all that Canon glass, uh, at least the EF mount stuff, can be, can be easily adapted, adapted exactly. to just about any mount uh, on the market right now. Or... You can always buy new cine lenses. And this to me, if I was a videographer, I would heavily look at, well, I'd I'd probably look at the Panasonic that you own. I'd probably look at Blackmagic Design. This inserted itself into that conversation. At a $3,500 price point, which uh, I mean, it's- Isn't that about the same as your Panasonic? Uh, it says here uh, in the article, uh, it's a $500 premium over the old Mark II version, but still $500 lower than the launch price of the S1H. And I didn't right. look up what the S1H is priced right now, but I'm sure they're comparable at this stage. And again, there's differences. It's an apples to oranges comparison between those two cameras. Uh, but for production work, if you want raw video output, uh, both of these cameras deliver. And Yeah, uh, I agree. Yeah. So... Uh, this, this is really interesting because we see the, in, the industry, uh, at large really adapting to niches, right? We see so many companies coming out with products. Uh, we see this with the, uh, the a7S3, uh, we've seen this with the GH5S, the S1H. These are video cameras, uh, that are built into a DSLR infrastructure to help somebody familiar with that format to kind of bridge over to that system. And it's not ideal. I mean, if you, if you're doing just video, these cameras are probably not for you because you could get a, you know, a C200 to C700 camera from Canon. You can get, uh, you know, Panasonic has its whole range. Sony has its whole range of, uh, of video cameras. That's what they're designed for. These cameras can also do stills. Those cinema dedicated cameras can do it kind of, but you wouldn't really want to. Um, and uh, do, they, do they find a balance? It does, is 12 megapixels still considered a balance today? For video, yeah. For video with a with a odd shot here and then, yes. Yeah. 
if you were prime like me, I'm, I'm actually a really good example of the opposite. If I bought an R5, I would never, ever, ever hit the video heat recording limit. I have a 5D Mark IV. I have a 5D Mark III. I have never, other than the fact that the 5D Mark IV right now is my webcam powered off of AC, I have never done video and had to worry about any of the video features in my DSLRs. So I'm the exact opposite of that scheme, but 12 megapixels because I'm primarily a photographer would not be enough for me. But if I were a videographer and needed a set shot now and then, I'm in the field, I'm filming uh, something, doing cinematography, and now and then I just want to take it off and do a snapshot, yes, 12 will be enough. And those would be a very high quality 12 megapixels uh, at the end of the day. So, hey, uh, thank you, Sony, for coming to the table with a new camera, uh, putting some other manufacturers to a little bit of shame. But that's exactly what we need in the industry at large, because that makes everybody else stress and push further. And uh, it helps us as consumers because our products then reach. Do you really think it's a little bit of shame, though? I mean, I have to say, and I'm a Canon shooter. I'm not a Canon fanboy by any means, but I'm a Canon shooter and I love my Canon gear. And I like usually what Canon does. That's part of the reason I'm a Canon shooter. But from a pure video point of view, this is a video camera that blows the R5 away. But the R5 was not designed as a video camera first. My point now, exactly. But, but the problem is the marketing team made it seem that way. That's, that's what I'm team, talking about. Sony's in sync. Canon is not in sync. The engineers and the marketing team need to have lunch. Exactly. Well, and and as Alex said in the last episode, um, that uh, uh, Canon's uh, video team and Stills team, they weren't allowed to talk to each other, at least in the early days. I don't know right. how it is now. Uh, but now, uh, yeah, they, they should have lunch uh, every week, maybe, maybe and, virtually. And, and <laughs> let me let me add this. I I have said, and I still kind of stand by that, I don't think the R5 issues, yes, when it was first announced, it was big news. It's newsworthy. It's a problem if that's what you were counting on. I don't see the Canon issues as being a huge issue in the sense of it's not going to hurt you, the videographer, if it's sitting on a shelf at B&H. Yep. The only time it's, an, it's a literal issue is if it ends up on a paid gig and you have to explain why you have an ice pack on your camera to your client or why you can't shoot because it overheated. And if you're a videographer today, the camera's not even out yet. I think it came out today or yesterday, actually. Um, so average people don't have it in their hands. Some people pre-ordered it early, but you could have canceled that. Or you've got 30 days to return it. If you take those cameras on a paid gig and it messes up your paid gig, I would argue that that's on you because the information about the overheating is all out there by the tool that does the job and do your job. I see a future market for uh, Pelche devices, uh, thermoelectric coolers right. to be mounted to the back of cameras. And this happened in the video world as soon as they started to uh, to bring uh, digital uh, into cinema in that scape. Uh, you would have like buckets of dry ice on set because right. things would just overheat like crazy. This is not a new phenomenon, um, but it's one that you should expect to encounter. My a- Canon my Canon 7D, original Canon 7D overheated at a concert, a festival I was doing all day and it overheated because it was Southern California. We're 107 today and we'd be shooting on a day like this. Um, you know, heat and electronics are never a good pair, but the information is out there before you buy a product, do as much research as you can. And if you think it's not right for you, wait for real world reviews. 
So doing research, Steve, if you were, uh, if you were to be, uh, you know, somebody that's counting your dollars right now and wondering where to invest, you know, there's a lot of companies, uh, <laughs> why are you laughing? Cause I know where you're going to go. Cause, cause I'm trying to make a segue here. Uh, and you you want to invest in tech. I mean, there's a lot of tech companies that are doing well right now, AMD, Tesla, but they might slip Apple and fall. just four way split. Yeah. Uh, so th- there's a lot of th- there's a lot of options in, in the technology, even in the photographic industry. You can look at the industry trends. You can see who's g- doing better or worse. We've been talking about that between Sony and Canon for the first story. Um, uh, pretend we're mid July. Okay, who would you invest in? Well, I probably would have considered an Apple or something, but I I don't think I would have ever considered a company that filed bankruptcy in 2012 that sold a bunch of its patents. Well, and even the same company sold off business divisions in mid-July. The company we're talking about is Kodak. And Kodak's paper and chemistry business was sold to a Chinese company in mid-July. And this is not Sino Promise Holdings, SPH. Right. Uh, it's not uncommon that a, a, a company will will buy the product, like the, the, the manufacturing source, like directly so that they're in control of the supply chain all the way from the manufacturing through the, to the distribution. Um, but uh, that was unusual, I thought, because, I mean, Kodak is now selling off more and more stuff. And yes, right. it could be lucrative in the short term, like they did with patents, but in the long term, it probably didn't help them very much. And so here we are um, with... <laughs> Reported on Petapixel, Kodak stock rockets over 2000% in 48 hours on drug pivot news. So, I mean, at this point, uh, I just, I just want to say, did you ever think that sentence would come out of your mouth? I, well, not, not in a good way. Yeah. Uh, I mean, if there was a drug scandal at Kodak, it might go down over 2000% or something. I mean, uh, of course, those numbers don't work. But my point is that um, Kodak was always in the the medical business to some degree. I heard rumors. I I, I looked and I couldn't substantiate it, but that Kodak had one of the only non-governmental owned nuclear reactors in the United States uh, buried in the bowels of their headquarters so that they could harvest uh, uh, nuclear isotopes for medical imaging purposes. And, and that makes total sense because they were really big in the medical imaging space for a very long time, uh, especially when it was all chemistry and, uh, uh, and all the much more complicated stuff than it is now. I'm not saying it's not complicated now. I'm just saying that it was harder to do then. Right, right, right. Um, and, and so now Kodak, uh, they're pivoting into drug manufacturing uh, with a $765 million loan from the U.S. government. Now, I, I got to state that that statement alone is is incorrect. They're not manufacturing drugs. They're not becoming a generic uh, manufacturer for uh, for uh, medications and what have the you. The actual end user deliverable product. They're making ingredients. They're right. making the chemicals that go into drugs. They're making reagents that are used by pharmaceutical companies. They're making the stuff that the pharmaceutical companies will buy to then make their drugs. And that will be uh, made on U.S. soil, which traditionally has been done in China and elsewhere in Asia and other parts of the world, not uh, on American uh, soil, North or South American, uh, for that matter. So Th- this is this is one of the l- the weirdest 
rebrandings. The logo is still the Kodak logo. You look at it and you think Kodak. They're virtually out of, you know, paper and chemistry business because they've sold it to Sino Promise Holdings. By the way, Sino also bought a Kodak factory uh, a while ago that, uh, you know, sell produces and sells Kodak branded paper film and chemicals. But let's just uh, be, let's be clear about one thing, though, Steve, before we go any further. Kodak Alaris, uh, which is one right. of the spinoffs from the bankruptcy, held the chemistry and paper manufacturing. They also did the film manufacturing, which, which has not been sold off to anybody else. So Kodak, at least Kodak Alaris, I believe, is still manufacturing Kodak film for anybody that might be on the edge well, of but, their seat. But Sino is, meaning the the new company, Sino Promise Holdings, they actually, with the factory they bought from Kodak, are making Kodak branded paper, film, and chemicals. But I think, yes, the pivot to the, you know, the drug pivot, as they called it in the headline, is part of it. But it's the $765 million loan that is actually a loan worth multiple times their own market cap. That's what caused the stock to go up. Well, exactly, because their 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 market, and I brought this up um, was meaning it's not it's not that they're into people didn't go Kodak's into drugs buy no it's <laughs> you know somebody believes they're worth a seven hundred and sixty five million dollar loan what do they got going on buy it because otherwise it doesn't go up two thousand two hundred ninety percent yeah it's telling me their market cap is now uh, nine hundred and fifty five point uh, six million dollars uh, as of right now. Yeah, but their their stock was worth uh, just above, hovering above two dollars US, and it spiked like, to uh, well now it's at about twenty twenty two dollars. So it's gone up tenfold. Uh, but it hit a high that that day. It went from two sixty two up around sixty. Yeah, yeah. It uh, it was gone. Actually, I'm seeing uh, a high. The very highest that it got was forty six dollars US. Uh, from $2 and change. Uh, that's just a ridiculous jump. And will that actually pan out? Now it's it's calmed down a little bit. But if you were a diehard Kodak fan, man, this is your, uh, this is your reward. Uh, thank you for investing in the Kodak brand. Yeah, if all your grandparents time. left you Kodak stock, you've been going, I'm not going to sell it at $2.62. You might want to sell it now. You might wanna, and I think that based on that high, a lot of people realize that uh, and have started to to kind of divest if they were those long term investors, and that's fine. But it also it makes me question where Kodak is going to be in the future in terms They're of getting company. high. Uh, pivoted to drugs. <laughs> well, there you go. <laughs> where are they going to be in a photographic space? Uh, are like is this going to be just a vestigial past now that they have separated their industries? Yes, another company still uses the Kodak name, but I've seen the Kodak name on portable DVD players. Well, and technically, the film business was not part of this deal. Exactly, uh, but it is still technically the core of the Kodak brand, Correct. Uh, the Eastman Kodak Company uh, that was a part of this deal. And so, if so much of what their business is now has absolutely nothing to do with photography, is the Kodak that we knew and loved officially dead? Oh boy! I mean, ar- arguably, the the company that we knew and loved has been either dead or dying for a long time. I think really, if you were to say anything about this, again, I think it's going to be one of the most interesting, possibly studied 
reemergence of a company that had filed BK and within eight years, not only turns it around, but ends up in a scenario to get a huge government loan and have their stock leap. That's unusual. And so in that sense, I, I think it's a, a great story. But I don't think Kodak has been what we think of Kodak for a long time. Well, exactly. Uh, I mean, it, when I think about Kodak, I right now I think about film, paper, and chemistry. And that was a separate entity, that Kodak Alaris company, um, yep. not the Eastman Kodak company. And I don't even know what Eastman Kodak has been doing, aside from running tours around their headquarters and holding some photo workshops in Rochester. Um, it, it's, one of the lar- it's one of the greatest missed opportunities. Kodak, the, the famous camera company, one of the early developers of digital cameras, couldn't capitalize on it. Um, it, it literally is one of the, the biggest blunders of a company that couldn't pivot and now has not only pivoted but possibly but but have they really pivoted they didn't pivot and now the fact that they didn't pivot and they had expertise in chemistry and uh, material science and all of these things that's now valuable again um as the united states tries to internalize its supply chain well but i mean it's still even though they had that expertise it's still a pivot if you're taking the internal resources of your company and completely revamping the the processes by which uh you will make money as an as a company that's a complete internal restructure that's not a minor thing yeah yeah no you're right you're right about that um all right. Well, let's uh, let's move on because there's not much more to talk about until that all shakes out with uh, with Kodak. But hey, that's on our radar, and we're going to follow up with that to see exactly what the next steps from that company are going to be. If it has any impact on the photographic space, if if they completely devolve from photography, uh, we'll make a footnote on that. But. We'll see where it goes. Uh, talking back about photography and the evolution of these new systems, we were talking about Sony and Canon uh, earlier. The uh, the L-Mount Alliance uh, has some new glass coming its way, uh, first and foremost from Sigma, who's a, a member of that. But they're about to release an 85mm f1.4 lens for mirrorless cameras next week, uh, including uh, the E-Mount and L-Mount. Uh, and it's going to have the DGDN uh, uh, uh a name on it. And, you know, I, I don't know what you think, Steve, but Sigma has really come along as a premium brand wow. with an affordable price in the last five to seven years or so. And do you, do you remember when, when we would all look at third party lenses and say, no, 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 I only buy Canon glass because yeah, now in, you, you can get a good Sigma lens or a good Tamron lens, but the quality assurance isn't there and you you need to make sure you get a good copy of it because you have a higher risk of getting one that's that's falling in between the cracks the sigma art series lens to me has completely redefined photographic lens quality yeah i completely agree Third party. And it's going to be in the it's going to be in the art lenses um and i think that we we cannot have too much competition in the space. The uh, the the medium telephoto, very fast portrait style lens. It's great for any portrait photographer, wedding photographer, uh, even action photography can benefit from a lens like this, so long as it's not directly in your face. Right. Um, 
And uh, I would argue even a landscape photographer can make some amazing work at 85 millimeters. And if it's tuned to f1.4, um, well, I should say if it's maximum aperture is f1.4, it might be tuned to something more around f2. Um, you always get a bit Still. of extra benefit when you stop it down a little bit. Um, and well, but less I, on a, less on the mirrorless, less on these type of mounts. Yes, this is true. On, yeah. on a full frame DSLR mount, you're better off to stop it down a little bit. But all of those edge artifacts and softness and all a lot of that's gone when you start moving into these type of mounts. Exactly. So Sigma's coming up with this brand new lens. Uh, and on the heels of that announcement, or maybe slightly before, um, Venus Optics has stated that it's now offering six of its most popular Liowa lenses in L-mount format. Uh, and so that includes their, uh, their 10 to 18, uh, their 12, 15, 15 millimeter macro, 65 millimeter macro, which is an APS-C size uh, lens, and their 100 millimeter um, 2x uh, f2.8 macro lens. So six lenses from extremely wide angle to medium telephoto macro type of uh, type of design. Um, as a third party manufacturer, I've actually used a number of these lenses, the 15 millimeter macro and the 100, as well as other from the Lyowa lineup. And that 15 and- millimeter is an f4 and it's a wide angle macro. Well, yeah, it's the widest angle macro lens, the the only 15 millimeter lens that can achieve one to one macro magnification. Right. It's a Whereas really the 65 odd 100 duck. Are, are the 65 and the 100 are not one to one, right? They're two to one. Uh, yeah, so they, they'll they'll hit one to one and then double that if you keep uh, if you keep okay. going, which I, I kind of like. I, I don't like the fact that a lot of uh, the traditional terminology for macro was one-to-one you had to hit that and it's been misused to be less than that so misuse canon. it to be more than that oh canon sigma uh tamron uh even panasonic on their 24 to 105 kit lens which i love and it does focus much closer than the canon 24 to 105 that i had loved previously um it doesn't hit one-to-one and thereby it doesn't hit macro yet the term is still used it's been misused all over the place so I wish more companies made like 1.5 to one, two to one macro lenses. Just dial, just let the the zoom ring go a little bit or the focus ring go a little bit further. Um, so Venus Optics as a third party manufacturer, they're to me, uh, Sigma has come up in, in some great ways in the past. All of Venus Optics lenses are manual focus. Some of them are electronically controlled apertures. I have the 100 millimeter macro on a Canon mount, um, which lets me control the aperture electronically, which is nice. Uh, But now they're all making them for the L mount as well. So that, I guess, adds some viability to the platform, extends the, uh, the structure a little bit. Where do you see, Steve? Because we've got so many different companies, uh, Canon, Nikon, Sony and the the L mount. Those are all the full frame mirrorless platforms that we currently have on the market right now. We have some outliers. Of course, we have uh, Olympus, which might not do full frame at all uh, because they, they've sold off their imaging division. We have no idea what's going to come from that. We have Pentax that's holding fast on their, uh, their flapping mirror designs uh, from their parent company, Ricoh. And uh, there's no real other prominent players in the photography space. So we have four main contenders, one of which is shared amongst a consortium. So you're talking where, mounts, not lenses. Yeah, we're talking yeah, yeah, we're talking mounts. We're talking mounts. So uh, where do you see the future progressing? 
As far as mounts are concerned, I mean, you're not going to get everybody to merge together. Everybody's going to use their own mounts because they want their pin assignments. They want to be able to, to, you know, utilize pins uh, in ways that may not be standard that they see as a technological or uh, otherwise useful advantage. But what I see happening, even though I think the mount structure will stay the same, and I wish it didn't, I wish that we didn't need this many adapters. I wish the camera company, the, the camera industry as a whole, could settle on a particular mount, and they should have, in my opinion, a long time ago, that gave each company the ability to adapt the features that they want through an overly broad pin set, which is really what you need here, right? You need a certain pin set. The problem is you also need. Uh, to control the throw distance between the the back element and the sensor. And based on how your body design, you may need it different. But either way, I wish they'd standardized on something with an, such an extreme number of pins that everybody could adapt it. That's not We standardized happen. on memory cards to some degree. They standardized right? on, well, did they though? Well, uh, almost every manufacturer has made a camera with an SD card in it, right? Yes. or And a second card that's different. Sure. Right. So again, stand, standards and all these cards are standards, but not everybody uses the same ones. So in many ways, that's hostile to the consumer. But companies, again, make decisions based on meetings that happen at a level above consumer that quite don't quite often don't consider or understand how that is hostile. They only look at how it is beneficial to the company. I want to say one thing about that Sigma, by the way. That's yeah. not a done deal. That is actually uh, something that was reported by a particular website that this lens is going to be released August 6th, but it's based on a banner. And if you look at the banner, there was something weird in the banner. It actually said 85 millimeter F1.4 DGDN art. Yep. And yet, if you look at any Sigma banner, they don't use the word art in their banners. So... Hopefully that will turn out to be true. Good catch. Uh, and I did read that in the initial uh, blush through, and I was just thinking, ah, we we've got it. We we've we've got the ticket here. But it it may it might not come to pass. That and, would be and, easy to fake in, in that sense. Um, here's my question for you. Kind of based on the question that you asked me, I'm coming back with a question. So we've got all these different mounts, and it used to be that was okay because Canon had the EF or RF mount. Uh, but they made their own lenses and that's all they cared about. And Sony makes their mount and whoever makes their mount and pan it, et cetera. But in a world where, it uh, just hit me the old voiceover line, in a world, in a world where third-party lens manufacturers are now having to make their lenses for multiple mounts, the same lens for an RF mount, for an EF mount, for an L mount, for an E mount. Is it possible that the flourishing of third-party lens companies could push the industry to a more standard mount down the road? I, I don't know. I mean, maybe. Um, the, I've always complained that the Sony E-mount has uh, too narrow a diameter. And if you're making a lens for an E-mount and any other mount, you have to make it for the lowest common denominator, which would be Sony. And I don't want to call that a detriment. Uh, a lot of those lenses have been very innovative. Could they have been better if that lens had, uh, the, the mount had a wider diameter? Yeah, uh, probably. Probably. Uh, 
now that hasn't really pushed up against the limits of our current cameras, but it might in the future. The only company that's willing to uh, bring in other parties right now is Leica to the L-mount. And uh, Canon and Nikon, they've always been so terribly closed off. Um, I've had more, uh, you know, third-party uh, fully functioning lenses uh, on the Sony E-mount that have come across my radar than on Canon and Nikon, aside from the old guard of the uh, Tamrons and Sigmas and so on and so forth that might have had some inside communications. But the, the new upstarts have had a really hard time getting that communication protocol down pat. Um so will will Canon and Nikon and Sony give up their mounts? I don't think so. I, I think that they're so uh, invested in that that they're not going to let them go for any reason. Um, and that I think that hurts the industry. I, I don't I don't think it helps. Uh, to, to, I don't think degree. it hurts. I don't think it helps. I mean, let's face it. They've gone this long. And yeah. the third party manufacturers are clearly willing to make their lenses available to multiple mounts. Um, but I do wish that they would standardize. I also think if they standardized, you might get cheaper lenses. Well, uh, on the other the hand, these Lawa lenses are, are are surprisingly cheap for what they are. Oh, like the cheapest very one expensive. of the ones you mentioned. I don't remember which one it is. Of the ones you mentioned, the cheapest one's four hundred. The most expensive one's only nine fifty. Yeah. If they didn't yeah. have to manufacture it for so many different mounts, that would cut their development costs. And uh, I mean, the 100 millimeter macro is $449. It's a beautiful macro lens. The fact that it's available on so many different mounts now, including the Leica L mount, uh, the, the Sony E mount, uh, Canon EF, Nikon Z, uh, the original um, uh, Canon, uh, what's, uh, the original Canon and Nikon mounts as well, and now the Leica L. So th- if you have like, what, five or six, seven different lens mounts that you're making the same lens for, you've got to manage all of that inventory. What if one is underperforming and so on and so forth? Um, and design, means- you do have to revamp the design. So there is some R&D in there and manufacturing lines. Yep. It's tricky. Well, and that's why we don't see a lot of third-party lenses right now for, and, and there are some, uh, for the Fuji GFX medium format and the, the Hasselblad. Um, and this is my crude segue to the next story, which we're not going to spend a whole lot of time on. Um, but Hasselblad has announced firmware updates for its X1D 250C and 907X Special Edition. Um, these sounds almost like uh, Leica names with the Special Editions and stuff. But um, first of all, what do you think about Hasselblad as a company? I mean, they're owned by DJI now, so I, I don't, I don't know exactly where they're going. What do you think about the firmware updates and the new accessories? You take this one away, Steve. So, this is an interesting whole point here, and that is clearly there's a lot of people that are still shooting Hasselblad, but in the last, you know, three years ago, the number of people that even as we started getting into high me- megapixel DSLRs. The number of people who would still shoot Hossies and say, oh, no, no, I'm shooting a Hossie. I want the detail of medium format and blah, 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 blah. A lot of those people I'm now seeing as Canon Explorers of Light that are shooting Canon bodies. Um, Peter Hurley used to, years ago, be a a Hasselblad shooter. For many years, Jim. I don't know his thoughts. Say that again. I said for many years he was. I yeah, for many, many years. And there's a lot of people who did that have now moved into the more flexible body types. So where do I see Hasi? There's still going to be people who want to shoot a real medium format. I know people who still go out with, you know, uh, uh, 
I can't think of the name of the camera I'm thinking of where you put the big sheet of film in. Uh, well, large format, four by five, eight by Yeah, 10. that type of thing. Yeah. You know, I had a guy in the show who carries those out into the woods and still does landscapes with those. So there'll always be a place for it. What's weird is the firmware update that they did added two main features. It's the ability to quickly set your ISO or your white balance by touching the live view screen. Okay, cool. Should have been there probably anyway, arguably, but hey, you're moving forward. The second one, I love I've one. never seen this. I didn't even think through software, firmware alone that you'd be able to get this kind of gain. It's not battery life. Let's, let's state that up front. I'm not going to say battery life. I'm saying battery charge time. It improves the battery charge time by 20% from firmware. Huh? By up by updating the firmware, and I don't know if that's you've got to update the charger or if it's just plugging in the no, camera. No, it says with the normal charger. Uh, so you update the firmware on the camera, and it somehow uh, sprinkles a little bit of extra firmware to the battery, uh, and and now the battery can tell the charger to give it more juice. I, I, I don't I don't know the logistics of it. Uh, I, I do know that you know in in the the case of electric cars. Uh, there have been some thresholds that were put a little bit lower until you realize that, yeah, the actual safe marker is a little bit higher and you can adjust that. And so maybe there's a little bit of that in here. But this is a, this is a camera firmware update and it says you can charge the battery. You get 20% faster charging with the supplied charger. There's no mention in the article that you're updating the firmware on the battery or the charger. Yeah. Yeah. I don't, I, I can't. I can't figure that out. Even if it was a firmware update to the battery or the charger or both or all three, I still, I've never seen that before in the industry. So um, congratulations, uh, Hasselblad, for uh, breaking new ground. And and let's let's mention the the two accessories really quick. There's what a control grip that's kind of cool looking, I got to say, because the Hasi that, that they've got it mounted to, at least in the picture, is a small body type. Um, this gives you kind of a handle and it's got buttons and a wheel on it that let you change settings, capture images, review your media. It's basically like a grip, a normal grip, but it mounts under the camera. And then there's the optical viewfinder, which is this weird looking thing for 629 bucks. By the way, the grip's almost a thousand. Yeah, 629 so bucks. It mounts in the cold shoe, but it offers markings for composing images or where your focus points would be. But on a camera like that, I, yes, you want to get the classic uh, Hasi feel and, and whatever. And that's all you're going after is sort of a nostalgia factor at this point. Um, it offers almost no benefit because it's not like a rangefinder body. If, if you see how it falls, the, the second picture in the article, which uh, we'll link to at uh, photogeekweekly.com, um, it doesn't look like it comes out far enough. No. So that if you were to smush your eye against the viewfinder, you're going to get face grease all over the camera. Like you would have to almost like kind of put your head in on a weird angle in order to, to, to get it to get in the there. The first properly. thing I thought of was a scope on a rifle. Yeah. Right. Yeah. I mean, it's way set behind, way back from the edge of your focal plane. Uh, there's just a lot of weird stuff here, but yeah, well, I mean, would I shoot it if I had it? Yeah, I would play with it. Uh, well, yeah, absolutely. If, uh, if anybody at DJI wants to send me one of these with some of the new toys, I I'd play with it. I, I can't guarantee you a favorable review, but I would love to play with it. 
Um, so that's, uh, there we go. Uh, Hasselblad back in the news. Congratulations on that. And in the news, the final story, I just had to add this one and I couldn't leave this one off. Um, the winning images. And I was so excited. I was waiting for this. I just was on the edge of my seat. was keeping me up at night, wondering when, the, uh, wondering when this was going to come out. Did you the really win- know about this before you saw the story? Oh, I had no idea. Okay, good. Uh, thanks. <laughs> I was actually going to start worrying about you. <laughs> the, the winning images from the 2020 Potato Photographer of the Year contest. This apparently is a real thing. I looked up their website. They actually have some humble prizes that they offer. Um, and uh, apparently there have been uh, significant uh, submissions. And uh, you have to pay to enter. It's uh, uh, entry costs five uh, British pounds for up to eight images. So again, that's also modest. Well, but the um, proceeds go to, because it's a it's a combination between Photocrat and the Trussell Trust. Proceeds go to help end hunger and poverty in the UK. So all we- proceeds go to charity. This is wonderful. Uh, and I'm sure they got some sponsors to donate the prizes. And so that uh, that doesn't come out of the uh, uh, out of the pot. Now, a potato photography contest. I, I know that there have been very high priced potato photographs in the past. Um, uh, shockingly so. And so I, maybe I'm not surprised that from that, we now have a contest to photograph elegant enigmatic, uh, curious, beautiful, uh, dramatic potatoes. Am I doing this justice, Steve? Have you looked through the gallery? The only thing you need is that that classic Disneyland-style deep voiceover. Ladies and gentlemen, in 2016, Kevin Abosh did a photo called Potato 345. It was back in 2010, actually, but in 2016, that image... Sold for one million dollars. I I cannot replicate that voice, Steve. I need to hire you for voiceovers in the yeah. future. Um, but but I mean, think about that. Potato three forty five <laughs> is the name of the image. It sold for a million dollars. I so okay. Let, let's not get into those weeds. But I think from that has evolved this and um. The award-winning image, the overall winner uh, from photographer Ray Spence, uh, title End of Lockdown, which is, uh, it uh, it pictures a spud, uh, weirdly shaped kind of, uh, one of the little uh, eyes on the potato look like an actual eye, like in the right position. Uh, and they propped it up on what looks like a shirt and shoulders. And uh, it's exploding with roots on one side, and uh, there's a brush and a pair of scissors coming in to trim it back down. And I love that. I, I don't necessarily think it's the best of the set, um, but I think it's a great image. I think it's delightful. The title, but, by the way, is End of Lockdown. Yes, I, I think I said that, End of Lockdown. And uh, uh, I, I, You said Ray. My, under, my reading of it, it's R-A-W. It's, uh, so would that R- be Ray or Raw? R R A Y. I'm seeing here R A Y. Ray. Oh, Spence. I must be looking at a different article then. Uh, okay. Uh, who, who knows? Uh, I'm seeing it on DP Review. It says Ray Spence. Oh, so uh, I'm seeing the same thing. DP Review. It says the overall winner is Raw Spence. 
I don't who captured an image of this spread. Yeah, okay. Either way. Uh, well, if you go into number two and it says photographer on under oh, yeah, let me go look winner. at the details there. Okay, there it does say Ray Smith. So it was a typo. Ah, we found one. a typo on DP yeah, review. Sorry Those about guys that, are DP usually review. awesome. We have found a flaw. Um Okay, so what was your favorite image? I I've got a hard time deciding. That the the one of just the potato on a white background that looks like a reindeer, um, or a slug or something. I thought that was the nicest potato. Could have been lit far, far better. Uh, I, I I guess that there, there's the one that is. Um, it looks like uh, some uh, there's somebody like boxing in the background, and uh, it looks like these are Russian mafia people that would normally be counting money after a match. Uh, potatoes, it, yeah, or peeling except, potatoes. Except they're sitting there peeling potatoes under these lights. It just has an atmosphere to it that tells a bigger story of the wealth that a potato can can have. And I think that's that's to me my favorite. That was the sixth place image. Though. Mine's the fifth place one, which is field hands picking potatoes. Well, and that's a much more photojournalistic approach, uh, and uh, I I like it too. It, it's a it's a very nice image. It just it, to me, it's more about the field hands and less about the potatoes. Yeah, I would I I would argue that that's that's true. Although there's a lot of potatoes in the picture, the prize, by the way, I kind of want to enter. The prize wasn't shabby. No, well, okay. So what was the prize, Steve? Uh, prize, uh, uh, the the first place. So first place prize. Uh, Fujifilm XA7, one-year membership at the Royal Photographic Society, one-on-one workshop with a photographer by the name of Benedict Brain, and three years of PhotoCrowd Master Level subscription. Yeah, I, that sounds pretty good. For haircutting a potato. For haircutting a potato. Um, that's that, that photo better be worth uh, more than the prize money at this point. It now has notoriety. It's kind of a mashup. <laughs> Don't do that. Sorry. Ah, <laughs> <laughs> oh, lovely. All right. Well, that that ends our stories uh, for this week. We are we are over time. We still have our picks of the week to get to. Thank you for hanging on, everybody. But before we get to that, just quickly, very briefly, Steve, where can people find you online? Uh, people can find me at uh, stevebrazel.com. It's the same as the country Brazil but two L's on Instagram and Twitter. It's at Steve Brazel. And the podcast is behindtheshot.tv. It's behind the shot on YouTube. And YouTube is where you want to go to watch the critique shows that I do with Don once a month. Uh, Don and I have a guest on now that we've started. We started it two shows ago. And again, Aunt Pruitt is going to be our guest coming up on August 6th. And you can find the links to a lot of that stuff at photogeekweekly.com as well. Now, Steve, what is your pick of the week? You know, I sat looking around at what I, you know, because I'm not doing as much photography now. And so I'm thinking, well, what can I pick for my pick of the week? And suddenly it hit me. The one thing that I've never picked that I actually think is one of the most important things uh, that a photographer can have in their arsenal or do. And we mentioned it at the beginning when we talked about community. There are local photo groups, state in the U.S., state level photo groups, national level photo groups, they all have their place, but there is nothing like a local photo group that you can go, assuming you're out of quarantine, go meet with, or in the case of the photo group that I work with a lot, uh, IEPPV, Inland Empire Professional Photographers and Videographers, 
they have moved everything online. The image competitions are online. They are doing a Monday night, um, like just brainstorming cocktail hour for everybody to get together and talk. They're doing some kind of workshop almost every Wednesday night via Zoom. And so right now is a great time to get involved, even if it's online, with a local photography group. I'm a firm believer that entering image image critique in general, but entering local image competitions where you're not going to get what Don and I do. You're not going to get extended reviews of a shot by three people. You're going to have three people give you a score, which is meaningless if you're not trying to do anything with the score. But one of those three will maybe speak to your image for 30 seconds, and you'll just get quick hits on what people think of your images. And it's one of the best ways I think to actually improve your craft. So go find your local photo group and get involved. That is great advice. And, and I might even want to rejoin my local uh, photo club. I, I was the president of it for two years, and it was really helpful for me when I was uh, starting up. And then, you know, family life got in the way and um, professional career got overwhelmingly busy. Right. And uh, and I miss a lot of those chats. And and that's, again, it's one of those things I said to somebody on, on another thing that I do online, that one of the neat things about what we do, what you and I do in photography is, if you walk into a room of photographers, virtual or real, you immediately have an icebreaker. You all immediately have at least one thing in common. You love photography. And regardless of anything else happening in the world, you immediately walk in and there is a reason for you to become friends. You don't have to find that reason. You don't have to find what you have in common. And and I will say, even though it's not near you, if you want to kind of get an idea of what local photography groups do or can do, like, for example, you may be involved, but your group is small. If you want to get an idea of what some more founded groups do, go to iepppv.com. And take a look at the calendar, take a look at the website, look at the, the things that are coming up, and you'll get an idea of the advantages of being part of a group. Or if you're in a small community that doesn't have a photo club, uh, but you've got a big city an hour away that you never really wanted to go and travel all that much, uh, you know, once a month or whenever they hold their meetings. Well, a lot of them are now virtual. And I've, I've been actually getting some gigs doing presentations um, all across North America. And I've got, I think, one coming up across the pond in the UK. Um, uh, the, 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 the point I'm trying to make is, that photo community is now not necessarily local. It's still local, sure, but it's local in a different context where you don't have to travel the hour or two to get to that next photo club that's going to give you that level of interaction when everybody's doing it online. And none of that, let's say that you're in that small community and you don't have a group. You can always start one or yeah. find an existing online one. Like I just did, you mentioned you've been doing some stuff online. Uh, the guy who is the global marketing manager, and he's the the liaison to all the ambassadors for both SmugMug and Flickr, found out that we were using Flickr for our group, for our image critique shows, yeah. and asked me to come do a presentation on live music photography for SmugMug Live, which is their YouTube channel. And Fantastic. it was a blast. So you can go to yeah. SmugMug Live on YouTube and watch that if you want to. There's a lot of great ways to just get involved. Yeah. Uh, and it's only going to continue, I think. Uh, the the online component might diminish slightly once the pandemic uh, dissipates, but I think it's here to stay in a way that it wasn't before. Uh, and so yes, embrace no that now. 
and uh, and we'll we'll see where that goes. Uh, thank you, Steve. That's a great pick, and I I wholeheartedly agree. Let let's encourage that. Let's make that photographic community even uh, tighter, more uh, engaged uh, across no boundaries. Agreed. Now, my pick is one that I was, again, like you, I'm looking around my desk, what I've been using lately, what's been useful. Uh, and I might have recommended it before. We're 117 episodes in. I can't really remember. But um, Helicon Focus from Helicon Soft is a piece of software designed for focus stacking. And uh, I have used it in the past when I was doing very deep focus stacks on an automated focusing rail, and it has a bunch of different modes. Uh, it's good at what it does. I've used it in documentary settings when I had to batch a bunch of focus stacks together for video purposes. Um, it's not my first choice. My first choice is Photoshop because it gives me the ability to correct for problems if you're dealing with like 40 or fewer images. But if you're doing a lot of work and it's all very calculated and you're on a rail, Helicon Focus has done the best job of any piece of software to give me a good starting point to fix things. And I've got their uh, their uh, their pro level uh, version of the software, which I think it has features that I don't even really require. I would go in and get just the, the, the basic level or try their 30 day free trial and see what it does. There's three basic modes um, because no focus stacking algorithm is perfect for every subject. Uh, and it does something that other focus stacking algorithms don't do. Uh, Photoshop and Zarene Stacker uh, are all exclusively based on CPU. Helicon Focus has a GPU mode that you can just flip on, and it will use your graphics processor in order to do the focus stacking. So nice. When I was doing uh, some some work on uh, my main computer right now is a Surface Book Three, and it has a four core processor that's uh, it's it's very serviceable, but you know focus stacking might take a little bit longer. Uh, I flipped on the GPU switch in the in the menu and uh, I can't remember how to reboot the software or not but that's immaterial to the fact that it just sung it was singing along so beautifully um, that with the GPU turned on now that I realized that was a feature in the software uh, that it was faster than my 24 core desktop was using just the CPU Wow. Um, so yeah that was a major improvement uh, in what it was capable of doing and uh, it gets my recommendation. So Helicon Soft, um, uh, Helicon Focus is the software within that. And uh, it's, it's, not, it's not cheap. Uh, if, I, if I go to the purchase page, how, how much did I pay for this? I can't remember. They've got Helicon Remote and, uh, and an, uh, a variable tube as well. I paid a, uh, a lifetime license of $200. You can get a one-year license for $55 for the Pro for $30 for the light. And that's $30 for a year of a software program just to see if you're going to use it. That might be worth your while to just experiment and see, dip your toes in the water and see if that's worthwhile for you. And that's at uh, heliconsoft.com. Good pick. Thank you, Steve. And thank you for being here. This is a delightful conversation as always. As as you know, because I've, I've told you before, this is this is one of my favorite podcasts that there is, and just being on it is amazing to me. So this is always one of the best parts of my week. I, I, I didn't ask you to show me your notes. In the past, some episodes you have held up like a computer monitor or a piece of paper right. with very long lists of stuff you want to talk about after I send the show notes out. And you're, I think, the only guest that does that. So uh, thank you I very just, much. 
Part of it is you send out these stories, and and so that you know, for the, those of you that don't get Don's email, Don sends out. You're a the link. only one that gets it, but yeah, Don will send out a link, and then on occasion it will be a related link or maybe two related links, and then he gives the little Don synopsis of his opinion, and usually what I do is I open the links and then I read Don's opinion first. I kind of want to know where he's going with it. On occasion, I avoid Don's synopsis and I read it myself first. And that to me is the game is, okay, let's read this. Do I, okay, what did Don say? Oh, really? Because now I've already read it and it's fun to see where I agree or disagree. But the other thing is it's a chance to dive deep into topics, even just as a listener, right? It's a chance to dive deep into topics that I might not otherwise grab the article for. Well, and a lot of stuff passes by my radar and I'm thinking, eh, I'm not going to really spend much time on that. But honestly, it's a good topic to discuss on the show with another person to talk about because on the surface, from my opinion, I get my opinion. As soon as I have a dissenting voice or a different opinion on that same point of view, it becomes interesting. Oh, yeah. And you You and I I have had phone calls about all this cannon overheating stuff. Oh, you call me out of the blue and we just go on rants. Uh, and great. I wish we could just oh add God. that as an after show to this podcast, but it wasn't recorded. There's there's times 30 minutes into a call, we'll both just kind of go, we should have recorded this. Yeah, yeah this is a <laughs> podcast. Because it's like, so. wow. Yeah. <laughs> so yes, this is a blast. I appreciate your having me. I hope the people listening enjoy it. But uh, I've got to say- Way better than me was the Alex Lindsay episode. Go listen to that one. Well, you are a wonderful guest, Steve. And thank you so much for being a part of this. And for everybody listening, thank you for listening, continuing to uh, be a part of the conversation as well. And now, finally, after all of this talking shop, it's time to get, oh, I was going to say get out and shoot. No, no, no. In most places, you're still going to stay in and shoot. <laughs>